Hello everybody, welcome back to the BSF Lecture Series on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. And today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, the second portion of that chapter, verses 17 to 48. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches us about what is righteousness and what an authentic relationship with Jesus looks like. Before I begin the lecture, I just wanted to share with you a, free, a few brief announcements for this week for you to be aware of, uh, similar to what we covered last week. BSF needs your voluntary support. Also, um, if you're contributing to the cause of BSF by offering a donation, uh, that should be done on the website. You can do that and be sure to enter the code 1232 for the San Francisco region. That includes those of you who are studying this through your satellite groups, those who are meeting in person and online as well. If you forget 1232, you can also give by selecting for the First Baptist Church location, even though you are not physically meeting there or meeting through a group that meets there, still please select for the First Baptist Church and that will be diverted to our main pool for the San Francisco region. Thank you. The second announcement is to please think of ways to support your local group. You might have a group leader that has asked you to help out in some way. I hope that all of you might be thinking about how you can support your group leader because there's a lot that goes into putting a group together and making sure that we are serving one another and encouraging each other. So if you can uh, step up or maybe even if you think of something uh, that might be fun or interesting uh, that can be done to support the group, please uh, feel free to volunteer and call up the group leader and make suggest suggestions. Item three is if you'd like to meet in person for discussion at any time, you're always welcome to join drop-ins on Tuesday nights at seven. And those are for the men's group there. We continue to meet four of us, four groups of us are meeting there in person. You can bring along a friend. If they happen to be in the region, uh, that's even better because that is actually during uh, rush hour traffic on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Four, if you know of others who might like to try out BSF, they can uh, download the mini Matthew studies uh, study from the bsfblog.org site and try it out. A survey taken of uh, the people who participated in these studies have shown that 35% of the mini study users have gone on to become full class members. So that's a great way to get them interested and uh, desiring to learn more. Uh, the fifth point here is that if you'd like to come on a Saturday to experience what leaders, group leaders, go through in their training, uh, please feel free to join us. You can let your leader know that you're interested in learning more about that and would like to engage in the fellowship that we have currently. We are meeting on Zoom, so it doesn't require you to actually come physically anywhere. We do meet in person once a month. That's only on the second weekend of each month. But if you'd like to try it out, you can meet with us 8 a.m. on Zoom and join in the discussion that we have in the ways in which we prepare for our meetings. All right, and the last, uh, I think, uh, kind of uh, seasonal related announcements I had was regarding Halloween. I had mentioned that tracks are a great way to uh, give out your candies and gifts to your neighborhood kids, but uh, it's getting now down to the wire. And if you don't have tracks, there are other ways in which you can print out really interesting information for young people to discover uh, the origins of Halloween. Uh, I just found one there on the slide. You can see what All Hallows Tide, which covers three days, Mar October 31st through November 2nd, is about where it originates from and how Halloween got started as a Christian holiday to celebrate the lives and the faithful de uh, devotees uh, to Christ 
uh, in years past. So it's actually a festival and a day that was once used to commemorate and remember the faithful lives of the saints. And so people have downloaded these, printed them out at their homes on their printers, and then enclosed them in Ziploc bags with candy. And that's probably a good idea considering we're still under some degree of COVID um, guidance. All right, so let's move on for the lesson today. The big idea for us in this lesson is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Moses and the prophets presented in the law. The moral Levitical ceremonial observances, the prophecies and admonitions. So that's kind of long. Um, it, it's another way of saying Jesus is the only way to make any sense of the Old Testament taken together. That's the big idea. And the general aim of this chapter is that Jesus is causing us to learn that an authentic relationship with Jesus is what generates righteous behavior that glorifies God. So it's righteous behavior or righteousness that is in discussion on in this chapter. And there are two divisions for this latter part of chapter 5. The first division is taken from verses 17-20, correcting human-centered expectations about righteousness. And then the second is verses 21 to 48, instructing God's expectations about righteousness. And you know, righteousness is a, is a very, uh, it's a big deal. I mean, the, the reason why we have such a fallen world in which we live in today is because of the lack of righteousness and understanding uh, uh, that there is a universal, morally right way of life that we have uh, strayed far from. The verse that we are looking at as our focal verse this lesson is Matthew 5.48, where it says, Be perfect. Uh, in other words, be perfectly aligned with God or authentic, whole, having an integrity in your walk with the Lord. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Last week, we studied how Jesus called us to be salt and light in the world. If you have ever cooked soup or any other dish, you know that salt changes everything for cooking. It's very hard to find a recipe that doesn't call for salt. It's an essential ingredient, as vital as it is in all cooking. Uh, light is also very vital to our lives. It changes everything. If you have tried to read a map in your car without a light, you know how light changes everything. If you have light, you'll go on the right direction. If you don't have it, you might get even further lost. It makes as much difference as putting on your glasses to have light. So in the second part of Matthew, Jesus tells us that being salt and light in the world doesn't come from our own righteousness, but it comes from an authentic, intimate, vibrant relationship with himself. Only then can you be truly complete and authentic in Christ. Any good works of righteousness comes from him are motivated by your love for him are impassioned and full of creativity and zeal because of your passion for Jesus I was watching a television program about people who love cooking and aspire for excellence in cooking the episode I watched featured local San Francisco chefs renowned chefs who early on in their cooking career spent a lot of time with intentional impassioned cooks that they learned from who honed their skills by watching from the best people in their lives, who cooked even better than them. And so it's a transmission of the excellence in cooking from one 
generation to the next. The program featured people like, uh, these are names you might have heard of before, Thomas Keller of the French Laundry in Napa, who has the most Michelin stars among American chefs. He's a celebrated uh, uh, chef in, in the United States. Alice Waters, locally here in Berkeley, who popularized the farm-to-table movement, the practice of bringing fresh flavors and ingredients to our dining. Whereas before uh, the last two or three decades, we've, most American families have been eating meals largely taken out of a package or a box. This farm-to-table movement uh, reintroduced this idea of bringing fresh uh, ingredients into the kitchen for uh, family consumption. And then there's uh, Dominique Crenn who showed that vegetables didn't have to take minor roles on our plates as side dishes, but could be deliciously be the main course by itself. Uh, and that transformed uh, dining in San Francisco. So I mentioned these things. One thing that you notice about these people who are now in their 60s and 70s is their continued fastidiousness to order and structure their kitchen according to their excellence. They are uncompromising on their standards because they know that without discipline, attention to the details, and observance of the many, many rules of cooking, you can't produce the best foods that knock people's socks off and grab front page headlines. People spend $1,000 to eat at restaurants like this because they know the blessings that flow from the mastery of great dishes and great food. People glow as they leave these restaurants and talk about their experiences eating there for weeks. So obviously many aspiring cooks seek jobs to learn the trade from these masters. But it's hard to get in. It's, it's a long wait list. First, you cannot work for them if you're of the mindset that you want to do your own thing. You have to submit to the masters. Nor can you walk in thinking you have something to teach the chefs. You have to have a humble student's heart to learn and adapt your idiosyncrasies, your habits, your mindset, all up and create room in your heart to learn. It's in the same mindset Jesus calls us to righteousness because righteousness is not something that we conjure up and we figure out how to do. Righteousness is like a great force for blessing more than you can ever imagine. But more importantly, righteousness is at the heart of who Jesus is. And aspiring for righteousness is to adore and to be consumed by his heart's desire. His heart's desire for righteousness and loving it as much as he does. But in the same way, righteousness doesn't come from sloppiness or a divided, distracted heart. It requires that devotion that people have for learning how to cook the best meals, making the best movies, or even producing the best medicines. When people do this, people study it hard, analyze it, watch carefully the masters, make every effort to conform their lives to the undertaking of the goal they know is worthy because they know the great effects that can come from them. The greatest effects or blessings, however, are fundamentally always in the spiritual realm. While doing these things, an unexpected thing happens to the student. While they start to realize they not only love the practice of their art, but they gain a greater admiration and love for their teacher who embodies the practices that make these great things happen. Likewise, when we follow Jesus and observe him, imitate him closely, our love for God is elevated and enlightened in our hearts and our hearts bringing unexpected joy more than we could have imagined as we live into the qualities that define who Jesus is. 
as Malachi 4.2 foretold, Jesus is the Son of Righteousness, with healing in His wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. Jesus changes and transforms us the more we spend time with Him. So in the second part of Matthew 5, uh, as I mentioned before, there are two divisions, verse 17 to 20, correcting human-centered expectation about righteousness, and then verse 21 to 48, instructing, God's, instructing in God's expectations about righteousness. So Jesus told us that despite the sorrow and despair that has entered the world, there is nothing in that despair that God cannot recover, that God cannot bless, so that we can abound in it. He has said that he will make all things new. We learn from our study of the Beatitudes that God teaches us with contrast to know before and the after. The value of teaching by contrast, if you've ever watched a home remodel show or seen a plain looking person given a makeover, is that contrasts uh, tend to drive home what a difference a makeover can have on a person. God teaches us the powerful contrast of living in Him, and it is not a simple thing that can be overlooked. Rather, Jesus is talking about a momentous change and transformation. We saw this change in the beginning of the universe in Genesis 1. Creation itself starts off in darkness, emptiness, and formlessness, not because those things describe some fundamental state of things in eternity, no, God is telling us an important truth which he will remind us repeatedly by contrast and comparison throughout the scriptures about the enormity of the power of his presence and his word in the world as it brings light and life into the world through Jesus, who the Bible teaches in Hebrews 1, John 1, and Colossians 1 created all things. He's the one that speaks life and light not into more pre-existing life and light, but in a state of emptiness carved out of their absence of these things to really show the vital nature of his presence. Everything about God is manifested in and through Jesus. God's word, incarnate, Emmanuel, which is God with us, makes all the difference. By this, we can truly appreciate the typology of God's love and power through realizing the grandeur the great change and difference of what we are witnessing when Paul tells us in uh, Romans 8, 38, 39, that I'm convinced neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor the powers, neither height nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So contrast. These contrasts are important, and I, again, I mentioned typology as a way of talking about really appreciating the difference. You know, typology is a ge geographic term often used to denote uh, how landscapes have their relief. And so we don't really fully understand the grandeur of something until we appreciate how deep it goes or how high something is. And so in the same way, in the contrast and in the comparison, we are able to see how great and grand God's um, principles are and that what change it can uh, have in our lives. So it's not surprising to us that Jesus says that not in the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of the pen will disappear from the law because the law of God collectively embodies an overriding master theme for our lives and our minds that echo his heart and his person. They are the house rules, let's say, of the kingdom of God. 
followed not by force or coercion, but we love the host who has made it possible for us to inhabit and even more so to become heirs into his kingdom. Children who can have free reign in this kingdom. So the righteousness of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law was uh, superficial by comparison. It was superficial and hollow. Superficial piety and niceness can be one of the strong uh, false perceptions and no notions that we have about ourselves that can block our relationship to God. We have seen it many times that people can easily act and pretend the life of a good person in order to be accepted, to socialize and gain approval of others. Um, a lot of it entails dressing up and decorating our behavior and activities, but it doesn't change our attitude, nor does it impress God. The things that impress the world rarely, if ever, impresses God. In Samuel's selection of David to succeed King Saul, God tells prophet Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that was when he looked over the set, uh, six other brothers and realized that they were tall and handsome, but David was shorter. Um, he was ruddy, but not as striking as his brothers were. And God was telling him, don't look on the outside. Saul was also a towering, attractive king that turned heads. He looked like a leader and a king by all human criteria. Similarly, religious people can look religious and be far from God's heart, and God knows this all too well. It says in John 2:25, Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. When is the last time you were struck by people and followed after the words of people who looked attractive to you in the worldly sense? How might a habit of following people of worldly appeal and influence misguide you and perhaps detract from truly godly, humble, and faithful people God wants to put into your life to mentor you and edify you? Remember, God is always trying to correct our human-centered expectations of righteousness into godly expectations of righteousness. So the first principle for us to be thinking about is our human righteousness cannot ever fulfill in any way God's expectation for righteousness. This is a basic and fundamental tenet and teaching in the Bible. So in verses 21 to 25 on murder, people get uh, have gotten used to thinking about the commandment uh, as thou shalt not and thou shalt not murder, believing that they were in good stead by not murdering anybody and by following all of the other negations in the law, like thou shalt not. The negations or not doing was intended to point to the question for everyone to ponder what they should be doing. Then what does God intend for me to do in relationship to others? Uh, I spoke with a Buddhist man once who said all religions were the same and they also taught the same principles as Jesus. So he gleefully explained that they also teach uh, the golden rule like Jesus, uh, which says, don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. You see, he proclaimed, it's the same. But you know, if you look on closer inspection, it's not the same. The negation is a passive calling to right living. Don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. It is essentially saying, mind your own business and others should do the same as well. Jesus instead calls us to a redeemed life, proactively living into, righteously into other people's lives. So whatever you wish, that other people would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, Matthew 7, 12. 
Later, Jesus continued to explain that loving others is contingent or depends on the first law, which is to love God. And after loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he says the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. To love others as yourself. That is not only profound, but for a non-believer, it may even sound absurd. How is that possible? Only by the righteousness of God. We who believe know that this is only possible because we know He first loved us and gave Himself for us, and we are now not our own. We have been bought with a price by the blood of the Lamb. Even if we did not murder, we might be holding anger, animosity, bitter uh, feelings, and resentment against others, holding grudges like uh, kind of credits or report cards against people, and holding these uh, grudges very close to our hearts. Jesus says, if we are angry with our brother or sister, we are subject to judgment. What does our anger achieve toward bettering myself or the other person? It doesn't achieve anything at all. We know from personal experience it achieves nothing at all except to build more walls instead of wells, instead of the wells of refreshing. Arguments produce more heat than light. In fact, Jesus in indicates that anger will interrupt our true worship before God. It clouds the ability to worship. That's why he says, if you have something against your brother, go and make amends with him and then come to offer your sacrifice. It clouds the ability to worship God, which is basically to love all the measures of his great worth in our lives. That's worship. To have an unobstructed view of the great worth of God and who he is in our lives. Adultery has a similar root to murder among Satan's lies. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Satan comes to steal and to destroy. If I might expand on those words, it includes terms like to pull down, to violate, to disassemble. Think about those words, to disassemble, to bring to disintegration, to crush and to rape to cause long-lasting harm. Our sinful impulses are aligned to do the same thing. For something as small as a tiny blessing someone else might have received, our hearts can snicker, denigrate, and deride those people in our hearts. Much of our profanity and curse words are verbal metaphors for wishing on others serious harm, a kind of rape and violence. Even to damn somebody or to tell someone to go to hell is not only idiotically presumptuous in the assumption that we have any say in the matter, but it's alarming to think how easily and quickly our hearts can wish hurt and damage on another person that God is deeply concerned about and loves. And so it is in adultery as well. We know that in adultery, lust develops in the unguarded heart Jesus says, the eye is a lamp to the body. And if the eye is dark, the body is full of darkness. It lacks discernment and puts the whole body in jeopardy to be deployed unto evil works. When we use the power of our imagination to seed impure thoughts, we have already used our minds and its amazing powers to disassemble, to rape another person with our thoughts. How can a mind left to easily wander into the lustful physical violation of others be then 
and another point ushered into the holy place of devotion in worshiping God. Sexual lusts and perversities can be greatly damaging to the spiritual life, such that Jesus uses strong language to heighten his warning to us about these matters. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Same with your hands. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus condemns the easy divorce of convenience that has taken over a self-centered culture. Marriage is one of the highest representations of a spiritual reality of Christ and his bride, the church. Divorce disfigures and lays shame to this holy imagery of God's higher future reality which was all created intended to bear out the beauty and truth of God's everlasting love for his people in and through his kingdom. So we come to the nature of our vows now and oaths in verses 33 to 37. We make all kinds of oaths and promises about what we will do. By thoughtless words, we swear bold promises, thoroughly pull people down easily and decisively and sever important social ties that God has meant for blessing. Jesus tells us not to swear at all by heaven or earth. When we swear to God, what strength or power is behind your words to bring about any of your vows and promises to fruition? They are empty words from a proud heart. Such an attitude is prideful, and pride is the seedbed from which all those corruptions thrive and grow. For the rest of the passage, we want to look at the second principle. Principle two says, God-centered righteousness transforms even the most difficult relationships. God-centered righteousness transforms even the most difficult relationships. One of the hardest things to do by human power is to love our enemies. Those who have offended us made life hard for us. Everyone has some small or large enemy in their lives, perhaps at work, among your family or relatives, or even at church among believers. Can you imagine the justice system for a new people group who were fresh escaped out of Egypt? What would have been needed to create great reinforcement of law and order in a people group that relied on foreign entity to enforce it? They had no law. The Hebrews had no mindset of law, but had the mindset of slaves dependent and in fear of their taskmasters. Imagine now a new nation without police or jail or other negative disincentives for bad behavior. The easiest thing for such people is to learn a simple principle of justice embodied in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What you did to someone else, you owed them back in kind. But here now Jesus says that that is not enough. Jesus elevates our thinking about justice such that the offended person did not ask for a retribution. The only way a person can overlook that injustice is to think about the cost and make a decision to forgive. Jesus is about forgiveness in his heart of mercy. Forgiveness is at the heart of Jesus and is dying for our depths of sin. Without forgiveness, we would not be able to understand mercy and grace and more vital attributes of God's heart, his love. He's the one that turned the other cheek when hit by a soldier. He's the one who gave up all his tunic and cloak and all that he had, even to his very self, his body, as he went naked to be nailed on the cross alone. 
and he's the one who walks the miles with us, behind us, beside us, and before us, preparing the way as the good shepherd who leads his sheep to good pasture. We can forgive because we have been forgiven in the most vital way, in the most needful way that we have been. He, because he qualifies us for magnificent things we do not deserve in the slightest. Jesus loved us, who were once his enemies. It's one thing to preach such things without ever needing to put any of it into practice, but Jesus knew all these things intimately because it happened to him. And he turned the other cheek. Jesus knew he would put each one of these teachings to his disciples into direct application in his own life. His enemies came stealthily in the night while his disciples sold him for silver and betrayed him, even though they had vowed with strong confidence, strong confident words moments before of their allegiance to him. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. All those times Jesus went alone to pray on the mount in the Garden of Olives, would you doubt that he had not prayed for the disciples, but also for the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious uh, rulers, the Roman leaders, soldiers who would later beat him and nail him to the cross? He loved them and never chased any of them away. If your righteousness is nothing more than what ordinary people do, what good is it, Jesus asks. Don't even non-believers, pagans do that too? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, authentic. Or in other words, be complete. Walk holy in walk of faith. Not half in and half out, fragmented in our allegiance and devotion, living a false Sunday Christian life, a divided life. A lot of young people are looking for authentic Christians. And because they fail to see them, they are jaded by the many fakes that they see. Too many times using false salt makes you want to throw away the salt shaker. So Jesus says, be perfect, authentic, real, and practice integrity in your relationship to me. If you believe the sum of all things, we are as new creatures in Christ, in the new life Jesus bought for us. We are able to live into his righteousness by his Holy Spirit. Have you prayed to God about your need to mature into a unified and whole believer recently? What can you do to identify areas of life that is at conflict or at odds with the spiritual life? How might your life look if you brought all areas of your life, your loves, your reactions, your emotions, into perfect alignment to what Jesus taught for us to live by? May the Lord help us to be bold in our walk with Him. God bless you.